are seeing some very promising results in macaws, which are an old world monkey. I thought macaws were birds, like parrots. They're both. There's two different macaws of vastly different species. I think so. Isn't that how you say macaws? Everybody and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Bailey Perkins. Hello, hello, everybody. Scott Melson, how are you, sir? What's up, man? It's uh, it is Friday. Indeed, we always record. Well, we don't always record on Fridays, but usually when and we today, have a, sometimes we have emergency pods. Man, that's true. But these days, every day is an emergency. I know, Bailey. Have you done? You haven't done an emergency pod with us yet, have you? I did. You did? I think the one of the COVID ones, the first yeah. COVID one. Oh, was yeah, the yeah. Pod, so. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I love emergency pods. And now it's a fresh hell every day. <laughs> so today, oh, yes, God, dude, dude, it's May 1st. We're opening up. Everything's fine. <laughs> That's, it's May Day, which is like ironic in, in many regards. So yes, today we're recording. It's Friday, May 1st. And as I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, effective today, the state of Oklahoma has relaxed some of its safer at home rules and allowed certain businesses to reopen. Uh, we have a neighbor friend that is a nail tech, and she said she has to go back to work today. She was not super excited about it. And so it was interesting to talk through the safeguards they are, they are taking. And she said, it's, you know, in order to really play it safe, it's you're, it's so silly to like do all that. It doesn't make sense. Like financially, it doesn't make sense. Uh, relationally with customers. So anyway, so the state is not fully reopened, but we're phase one or phase two, whatever we're on. Oklahoma is open for business. <laughs> and Andy, a, a soft plug for uh, the Lost Ogle, because they did a little column about like the top 10 places in Penn Square Mall to get the Rona as a, you know, jokingly way, but the fact that the mall is opening today as well. <laughs> and, you know, before we were recording, we were talking about, seems like that is not the first place on my list of places I've got to go when this pandemic is over. I'm not itching for an Annie Ann's pretzel or something. The Lego store. I don't know. The places that are first on my list are not open yet. No, no. And, you know, I'll be like, I've been okay for the most part. We've been home with the baby and you know, like it's nice outside. We can go for walks and, but really now the weather's warming up. Like today I was dying to go to Fassler hall and like sit out there with you guys and like have a big stein of beer and their like Mediterranean lamb sausage hero hot dog situation. I was like, man, that sounds so good. Uh, But we can't do it. So we'll wait longer. So let's let's kind of get into it and let's talk about what's happened this week. So reportedly the state has received about $1.2 billion in federal funding from the Federal CARES Act to fight the coronavirus pandemic. So it's to fight it and to like fill in budget holes from it. And this week we got a little more information about how that money is being spent. Yesterday on Thursday, Governor Stitt announced a new mobile testing program for underserved areas. They also announced they're going to expand testing to anyone who wants it, even those without symptoms, which is something we've talked about as being a need, right? And 
They said you can get that at any of the state's 80 drive-through testing locations. Also, Health Commissioner Gary Cox said that their goal is to test 90,000 Oklahomans during this month alone. And they're also dramatically expanding the number of contact tracer staff from about 150 we have now to more than 1,000, right? And uh, Scott and you and I were talking, there was experts kind of say that the the number you need of contact tracers is 30 tracers per 100,000 in the population. So for Oklahoma, that would be about 1,100. So holy moly, we might actually kind of reach a goal that health experts have set out for us. Scott, I'll go to you first. How how are these changes going to affect Oklahoma's response to the pandemic? Yeah, so regular listeners will know that when it comes to uh, commenting on the response to coronavirus by the state of Oklahoma, I have been uh, somewhat critical uh, in in terms of in terms of what we've done so far. So it may come as a surprise uh, to folks to hear this, but this is. Um, this is unequivocally good news. Like this is, this is something to feel good about. I mean, testing, you know, to test another ninety thousand in addition to the test that we've already done. That is, I think, um, I think that's a, I think it's a great goal. I think you could make a case that you know it, it maybe should even be, should even be a bit more than that. But I'm looking at the executive order report uh, that was submitted yesterday. The one for today has not come out yet, but so far. Uh, there's been 66,866 uh, tests submitted. Now, some of those are going to be duplicates because there are people who get multiple multiple tests for various reasons. But, you know, call it 66,000. So 90,000 on top of that. I mean, I think that's a really, that's a very solid goal. But even e- equal, equally important to that is, is this goal to have 1,000 people doing contact tracing. Because particularly if you're not going to test everyone, which as we've talked about is is a really is a really, really um, lofty goal. If you're not going to test everyone, then you have to have robust contact tracing. And, you know, having something like 1,100 contact tracers in Oklahoma would put us in a position to, to I think, approach that. So this, uh, you know, if, if I was, you know, if I had my way, we would do these things before we took some of the steps that we're taking right now, right? Like, I'd love to have the 1100 contact tracers and the 90,000 additional tests done before we start opening things up. But that's not what, that's not where we're at, you know? So, um, this is good. This is, there's, there's absolutely no, um, there's no other way to put it except that say this is a, this is a good goal. And this is the kind of concrete stuff that I, I wish we'd been hearing a little bit earlier. Like we're going to test this many people. We're going to do it by this day. We're going to have this many contact tracers, um, so this is, I think, a level up from response that we had seen previously, which is which is excellent. Um, I also would say too, you know, um, one one piece of data that uh, Paul Moneys, who's a uh, uh, does great work over at Oklahoma Watch, uh, put out on Twitter today. Um, so he plotted out a really important data point, which is what our positive cases are, like our new positive cases is the percentage of total cases tested, total total specimens tested. That number is going down, um, which is excellent. That does suggest that we are seeing a true slowing of the epidemic. It's gone from eight percent to about six percent now, which is which is another really good data point. So um, I wish that's a data point that was getting more talking points rather than talking about deaths and hospitalizations, which seems to be what a lot of public officials are are focusing on. Because that also also be a function of just increased testing, though. 
So it's it you it seems like it would be right, but it's not because you would su- suspect that you would as you test more people that the number of positives will go up, assuming the ec- epidemic stays static, right? So if if the epidemic is staying right, static, right, right. At it's like not proportional, 10, then. yeah, right, right. So assuming that the epidemic is static at say a seven percent positivity rate, which is what we've been at for a while, then. You know, if you test a hundred people, seven percent will be positive. If you test a thousand people, seven percent will be positive. If you test a hundred thousand people, seven percent will be positive, right? But if you right. see that number going down as the number of tests go up, that tells you that either the epidemic is slowing or that prevalence was not as wide as we thought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in Oklahoma, it's probably a both and situation, right? I think that a seven percent positivity rate is probably high for the state, but it also does seem like um, there is there is reason to think that our epidemic curve is trending down, which is unequivocally good news. Right. And from the data I've seen, it looks like it, it, it the, the curve is going down, but at a pretty slow pace, right? Yeah. This really depends yeah. on how wide you drag the graph you just made. Right. <laughs> um, right. But it, it looks like it's not going to be a a steep up and steep down situation. It was a steep increase and it'll slowly fade for a long time. I think, uh, yeah, that seems to be right. But I think there's a couple, there's like one of the reasons for that is that we cut the steep increase off, right? Like instead of letting it get two or three times as high as it did, we stopped it, right? And then you kind of take all those. It's not that all the people that were going to get coronavirus now won't, right? You're trying to get it so that they get it over a much longer period of time and don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Right. Definitively flattening the curve, right? If right. people pay attention to that little animation we've all seen, it goes, it's either steep up and steep down, or it's a, a more slow up and then a slow down that takes yeah. a long time. That's what we're seeing. Yeah. You know, um, and we'll, we'll see, I mean, we'll see how this goes, right? We'll see how things look in four weeks um, at the end of May, uh, whether we're going to continuing to take steps to, open up, you know, more parts of the economy and relax restrictions further or whether we have to backtrack. I don't, I don't think any of us know. So the other thing is that I think we may be closer to a vaccine than we uh, had initially thought. You know, a lot of us have heard the, you know, numbers put out there by Dr. Fauci, Fauci and other public health, health experts that were, you know, 12 to 18 months away from a vaccine on the on the short side. And it could easily be longer than that. Um, but there's a group out of Oxford um, who has maybe got a significant head start um, because they had been working on a vaccine uh, to another form of coronavirus, um, but they have now kind of modified that um, to be a vaccine for the SARS-CoV-2 or the coronavirus vaccine. Um, And because they were like, they had already done preliminary testing on the previous version of the vaccine and showed that it was like uh, safe. So now um, they can they can enter the next phase of trials. Um, so they're several several months at a very minimum ahead of everybody else. Um, and they're saying that like if this is demonstrated to be safe and effective, and they can get uh, emergency approval from like the appropriate regulatory bodies, um, they could have like several million doses available by like September, which is that's huge. Um, yeah, that's amazing, right? And like this is um, as you guys know. Um, Anybody who like listens to the show, I listen to the Weeds podcast a lot from Vox Media, um, and they had a really fascinating discussion uh, on their last episode about how much different this outbreak, like this search for a vaccine is than many other outbreaks we've faced in the past, because this is so new and it's taking such a devastating toll that if you can move up 
the vaccine process or treatment process by even a few months, like, you know, as opposed to like the mumps vaccine, right? Like by the time you had a vaccine for mumps, mumps had been endemic for like several decades. And so if you got the vaccine three months earlier, that didn't make much difference. Whereas a vaccine three months earlier in, in the setting of coronavirus is, is tremendous. So if and that, life-saving. If this, yeah, right. And so if this happens, right, if this group in Oxford is right and their inoculation is safe and it is effective and they can start getting this out to people by September, man, that's like, that's, that's a big deal. But one piece to that too, I just hope folks that don't get too comfortable once a vaccine is developed because there are some things that we need to add into our way of life that we've developed during this season of coronavirus to make sure that um, we're protected in the long term. So this idea of you know maintaining social distancing and uh, many um, restaurants and, and places having like the protective, mechanism above to to keep distance from people and I, I think a lot of those things should should stay so hopefully we'll see some changed behaviors um as we um go through the the COVID 19 pandemic yeah yeah so i think overall this sounds like pretty positive news about the numbers of related to the COVID outbreak in in oklahoma in particular However, uh, not all news about how the money's being spent in our state has been positive. On Tuesday of this week, the Oklahoman reported that the state had canceled a $9.5 million purchase of those N95 masks because the FBI was investigating the person or the company selling them, uh, which to me sounds like a, like a bad eBay seller review, like you, you know, for those of us who are old enough to remember heavy use of eBay, I guess Amazon now, you, it's only a two-star seller, and the FBI was looking into it, uh, and they said specifically that Oklahoma was um, identified as a potential victim of, fr- of their fraudulent activity related to some Chinese-produced ventilators, um, and so they were investigating it. And I, it, from what I read in, in the Oklahoma story, which we'll link to in the show notes, it sounds like there was an intermediary who was basically saying, listen, I got to have half the money so I can give it to the factory because they're not going to make them until we get half the money, like a half now, half on delivery kind of deal, which isn't terribly uncommon, but. Now, now see what I, what I need is we got to, what I need from you is I need, I need half now. I need half later. Okay. And when you give me, when you give me the half now, I go get for you. I bring, and I bring back. That's, that's my Russian mobster. I was like, that's I. You're just defending a different nationality now, but that's my that's my that's my Russian mobster. Voice. That makes sense. I you know recently signed a consulting contract that was a half now, half at the end kind of deal. However, mine was significantly less than nine and a half million dollars and didn't involve a different country um, or you know life saving medical equipment. Also on Tuesday, the Oklahoman reported that Attorney General Mike Hunter has requested that the state auditor's office conduct yet another investigation of the State Department of Health. And I say yet another because we all remember a couple of years ago that saga. Man, I Scott, I remember being in the Upper Room Studios recording that where we had to write it out. And it was like a page and a half of play-by-play. Bonkers. Just to figure out what was going on. 
just to find the money. <laughs> yeah, it was still there, right? That yeah. they didn't actually, it was hidden under a mattress somewhere in that old building. So this investigation or this audit is specifically to look at how the State Department of Health has been handling COVID-19 related purchasing decisions. Bailey, how are they making these decisions and specifically who are who is the person or people that are making most of these decisions? So you'll remember uh, that the legislature gave the authority to the governor to oversee um, certain agencies, particularly the Oklahoma State Department of Health. Um, this emerged right after the situation that Andy referenced a couple of years ago, where it was, what happened to the $30 million? What's going on here? Um, and so after that, the legislature gave the governor the authority to oversee um, this agency in that way. Um, and so Governor Stitt um, put, uh, let me make sure I am getting his name right, Gino DeMarco, um, who was one of the deputy tourism directors ahead of um, the PPE acquisition hunt. So he was in charge of finding for the state, um, how can we maximize the state's dollar by getting more supplies um, for a competitive rate. And so DeMarco um, ordered gloves and um, other supplies through a company called Torque Capital LLC that's based in Oklahoma City that hasn't been in existence for a long time. And on top of that, they got this finder's fee for finding these supplies, but then come to find out the person that they're getting the supplies through um, was being difficult and they still haven't received the, the items for purchase. And so this is leading uh, the uh, attorney general of Oklahoma to call an investigation to see what's going on with this. So um, I guess to circle back all those pieces, it's a person Governor Stitt appointed to oversee PPE, uh, but the person that he's contracted with um, found supplies, but the supplier is a little sketchy. Yeah, I think the governor refers to him as his PPE czar. Um, but yeah, his background is he's an oil and gas guy and then he was at the Department of Tourism and now he's in charge of this. So he's not necessarily like a supply chain guy, right? It's not like um, Tim Cook at Apple that was a supply chain guru. Um, but it, yeah, it sounds like there's been some questionable expenses somewhere in there. I mean, I don't know. This is typically what I do, right? Like when I'm looking to hire somebody to like work on my house or like manage a project. I, I try to find a company that has been around for as short a time as possible and doesn't appear to have any like experience relevant to the job that I want them to do. Um, and then I ask them to kind of take the lead on it for me. And it's, it's never like, I mean, it's always worked out well for me. So, and you give them half up front. Yeah. And then I give them, then I give them, and I give him half up front to, to, you know, to kind of grease the skids a little bit. So, 
this, this actually is a good point as a reminder to Oklahomans everywhere. It is storm season. You may have hail in your area. And as soon as you do, a million roofers will descend upon your neighborhood. Many of them are not from around here. Many of them just bought a hammer and a ladder last week, or maybe during the storm even, and now they say they're a roofer. That is not the case. You should definitely, whether it's roofing or you know, purchases of PPE for millions of healthcare workers in your state, you should vet the companies with whom you're doing business. And there's typically usually an approval process of vetting different companies that the state contracts with in most things. And so it's very unusual to see us, you know, in a way to kind of visualize it, do a Google search of, you know, who could find me PPE and, and, and randomly pick someone that hasn't been vetted. I mean, Andy, to your analogy, um, the Oklahoman reported that uh, Torque Capital is described on its website as a global food export company sending chicken, pork, beef, and other agricultural products from Americas to Asia, which I don't see anything related to supply chains or PPE production or anything within that description of, of what they do. So this was somebody gave me a good deal and it sounded good. So we went with it. Well, and when I sent the article to Scott uh, or put it in Slack for both of you, Scott's first inclination was like, Who's he related to? Like, are we going to find out in a couple of days that this is, you know, some commissioner's cousin or brother or whatever? And Right. I mean, like, that's, and, you know, in all seriousness, like, the idea here of, like, hiring a private company or, like, finding, like, uh, a middleman to, like, to to be in charge of procurement is not is not crazy, right? Like, that's not a, right. like, yeah. it's something that I think is, I, I'm not a business person myself, but I think it's something that's kind of commonly done in the business world, and that may be why, you know, the, the governor's inclination is to go that direction. But like, I mean, just find someone who that's what they do, not like a rando who like, you know, there's nothing wrong with being someone whose problem predominant business is exporting, uh, you know, meat products to uh, Asia. Like that's great, but that typically is not like, you know, someone who, you know, does healthcare supply chain management. Although actually, as I'm thinking about it, so see if this makes, see if this makes sense. So his job, right, this Torque Capital, they were supposed to get gloves, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a meat exporter, maybe you buy a lot of gloves? Yeah. Sure. I mean, well, right? you, you know a guy, right? Right. I mean, so like maybe that's why he was the finder's fee is like, hey, you know, you, you know I, need, I need gloves for my meat. You guys need gloves for healthcare. We can... Uh, you pay me a little, you, you give me a little something, something, and I'll hook you up with my glove guy, and uh, right. we'll get you three million pairs of gloves for Oklahomans. So, so I think this is part of the deal, right? Is that this is this is an unprecedented situation, and all this stuff that we need—gloves, masks, gowns, webcams, like any, all these things that we need. Literally everyone in the world needs them too, right? It's not right. just like a hurricane in one state. And so like Florida needs this stuff, but like Montana doesn't. Like everybody needs this immediately. And most of this stuff is produced in the one country where this all started and everything shut down, right? So most of this stuff is produced in China. China got it, obviously, you know, the virus kind of took off there. And so as China, they like dipped supply, right? Like they cut off production of a bunch of stuff t-shirts, you know, all this, everything. Right. And so once it 
spread, then the rest of the world's demand goes way up, but production is down so much that things are in short supply. I've been trying to um, purchase some live streaming supplies for CivicsCon, which is coming up in a few weeks. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, and I needed a, a device to connect my my nice camera to my computer, and they've been out of stock everywhere like for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I would call around, I'd call companies in New York, I'd call companies in California, companies in Seattle, and they and they all import from the same place, right? And no one knew when it was going to come in. They're like, we might get three next week. We have no idea. We've ordered, you know, 2000, but we don't know when they're coming in. And so I just kept calling, hoping I would like strike up a friendship with someone over the phone and that maybe they would slip a little USB capture device like in the mail to me rather than somebody else. Maybe what I should have done is uh, grease the wheels and like slipped him a Mickey to help it help it happen. What is a Mickey? How does that a that's not drugs, is it? I don't know what a Mickey is. So I don't I'm curious if this is, you know, the state's fault, middleman's fault, or if this is a symptom of this global epidemic that we we're not prepared for, right? Like the last time we had one of these was a hundred years ago and the world was fundamentally different in every way. I think it's a, you know, who is it that's one of the Silicon Valley like tech people is like move fat, move fast and break things, right? Like that's the like kind of the the new like startup mentality. And mm-hmm. I think that I think that people are kind of bringing sometimes that mentality to fighting coronavirus, which is good. Um, but this situation, I think, does show that we still need to you know, when we're going through things and spending taxpayer money, like we need to still do due diligence, right? Like we still need to, it's, it is certainly okay that some of the normal like regulatory mechanisms that we have in place, maybe we don't have to abide by all those. Maybe we suspend those in order to get, you know, supplies and medications, you know, as quickly as we need them. But you still have to make sure that you're giving money to like a real company and not one that's being investigated by the FBI for making like, you know, crap ventilators. Right. And it takes time to be able to do that type of research. But it, when you are somebody who has expertise in procurement, you know how to look for the red flags. And I think sometimes we get stuck in trying to find, you know, what's going to give me the best price at bottom line. And that's a huge risk that you take when you try to find the cheapest versus what's going to be the most reliable. And so I think that's something that the administration um, and hopefully the agency will be more thoughtful about going forward, that we can't just try to quickly look for what's going to be the cheapest, but really, as Scott said, do our due diligence to make sure that um, we're protecting taxpayer money. Right, right. Speaking of taxpayer money, the legislature is supposed to come back into session next week. Rumor has it and um, reconvene to resume budget talks or get down to brass tacks. The problem, of course, is that the state is expected to have somewhere between 800 million and 1.3 billion dollars less than they did this year. So uh, somewhere between a giant and enormous budget hole but the legislature is not sure how much, right? They think around 800, the governor's office says 1.3 billion. 
That's a difference of roughly a half a billion dollars, which seems like a really big variation <laughs> in estimates. Yeah. And this does not include money for Medicaid expansion. Oh, right. They need an extra 150 million or something for that, right? Right. And the, which is expanding either way, right? Like right. the governor's expanded it and then uh, the people get to vote on it in June. So there's a really great non-doc article from today, I think, that talks about this. It was, again, traced with some really great quotes from the um, budget chairmans from both the House and the Senate, Wallace and Thompson, respectively. And they sound, I'll say, downright frustrated <laughs> at the governor's office. Cantankerous, even. Cantankerous, yeah. That they feel like it sounds like they can't get straight answers, even when they ask. Um, Wallace made some reference to as a sports analogy and being in the lead and trying to run timeout. What do you guys, does it, do you think we're all going to get cut? Like all the state agencies are going to get cut. Who's going to get it the worst. And do you think education will be held harmless? I mean, I think so that non-doc has a great piece on this and they're, what they're saying is, well, what the, what the legislative leadership is saying is, all right, so the governor got all this COVID money. And he's not telling us how he's going to spend it. And he's particularly not telling us how much is going to go to education. And he's telling us to prepare, you know, we need to be writing a budget for a $1.3 billion shortfall and which is cuts of like seven and a half percent across the board for the next fiscal year. And they're like, the reason that we feel like, you know, to, uh, to quote, to quote a friend of mine, that dog don't hunt is because the governor's office also sent letters to the directors of all these state agencies asking them to prepare budgets for 3% cuts. So they're like, what's, what's the real number? Is it 3%? Is it 7.5%? I think everybody's operating under the assumption that there's going to be less money next year, but the question is how much? And in state budget terms, a 4.5% difference is a big, big difference. So the legislative leadership is asking the governor, like, where are you getting these numbers and what are you doing with the coronavirus money? But what Mr. Uh, Representative, I think Wallace is the one who made the uh, point about running, uh, you know, kind of running the clock out, is that the legislature has to pass a budget by the 29th of May. Constitutionally, that's what they have to do, right? And the governor, as far as I understand it, doesn't have to tell anybody how he's going to spend this $1.2 billion in coronavirus money from the CARES Act. So, so the the governor's kind of saying, like, all right. I've given you the numbers I'm going to give you and I'm going to go do my thing. You guys prepare the budget. Um, Is this like when you're married and one, one member <laughs> Bailey's already nodding. When one of you gets some money, you find an extra 50 or something. And um, someone, your buddy gives you 40 bucks to help them move. And you're like, this is my money. This is, this is not your money. This is my money. I'm going to spend on whatever I want to spend it on. And you can't say anything about it. The governor got, got some of my money. That's what it feels like. Um, but it's also an interesting dynamic from a political science standpoint of how these two bodies are, are functioning or not functioning <laughs> together, um, especially with the legislature allegedly holding the power of the purse and now the governor holding the significant amount of money that can make the difference in the budget. It's an opportunity for the governor to flex his authority in the way over over the legislature. So it's it's interesting. 
And, you know, the governor has also kind of floated the idea of using some of this money to shore up the, uh, oh, what's the name? the name of the education scholarship credit fund thing, where basically you can donate money and get a tax credit if you donate money into this fund that's used to support scholarships to uh, private schools. Um, and he wants to use some of the money to go into that. <clears throat> yeah, he wants to use, Henry? yeah, he wants to use some of the money to go into that. Uh, Secretary Hoffmeister, um, uh, uh, Secretary Superintendent Hoffmeister has said she doesn't think that's an appropriate use of the money. They're just, it seems like really poor communication. Everybody's like, they're not, they're not talking to each other very much. Everybody's like trying to protect their own little fiefdom. You know, the governor, I think, feels like he's been burned by the legislature a few times recently when it comes to tribal gaming, when it comes to the, you know, the, uh, the, like, Two hundred thousand dollars for his like technology infrastructure digital transformation, uh, digital fund, transformation. Yeah. right? So it's just you know it's uh, you know my, my, I'm the oldest of three. I'm the oldest of three three boys, and uh, uh, when we were you know getting in getting into it, sometimes my parents would tell us if y'all are going to get in a pissing contest, go outside. Um, and it feels like that's what we kind of feels like that's what we're in right now. I don't know. At the expense of 4 million Oklahomans. So it is funny. So, you know, we've been doing let's fix this um, for just over four years. This past Monday was our four year anniversary birthday, whatever that appropriate designation is. And, and we've been doing the podcast for, I guess, two and a half of that. And so in my short time of really paying attention to the, the Oklahoma legislature and politics in this state, it seems like history repeats itself very frequently. And from the conversations I've had with folks who have been around a lot longer, it definitely repeats itself. Sometimes the names change. Um, but I was thinking this morning about how there's, I wonder what the cycle is. If it's like an eight year, 10 year, 15 year, like cycle of, of where like kind of regimes are in power, like, and things operate under a certain, uh, like, you know, modus operandi for a certain amount of time. Like we, you know, the end of Governor Fallon's tenure was certainly a shift um, where we saw often the House versus the Senate versus the governor's office. And in that three-way tie, there would be different alliances. And since Stitt's taken in uh, or gotten in office this year in particular, you know, the first year is everyone's trying to figure their place out. And then this year it's been the legislature versus the governor over and over and over again. And as I think as we discussed last week, I wonder if this is going to be what this is like for him for the rest of his term. He's got two more years left. That's got to be exhausting. And Andy, it's a reflection, too, of having a person at the helm of the, the governor's office who doesn't have experience in governance. Uh, because in the past, as you noted, the interactions and those relationships among uh, the House, the Senate, and the governor's office were a lot different. You didn't have the legislature coming together to sue the governor's office in previous years, right? Um, to say, hey, you need to do this because this is part of your job. A lot of the tensions among those three areas of, when I say areas, the House, the Senate, and the governor's office was among um, uh, policy goals and interpretations and not fundamental ideas of, of, of governance. 
um, we didn't see, you know, Governor Fallon trying to hold the legislature back from uh, figuring out how to, to get funds for the budget. I mean, two years ago was a different kind of beast with, you know, the fees versus mm -hmm. yada, yada. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we're experiencing um, during this administration is is unprecedented for um, Oklahoma politics. And so it will be interesting to see over time, you know, is this going to be the new normal of the House and the Senate who often have their tensions, you know, standing in lockstep together saying, this is how we need to move our state forward, because you have you know, this body in the legislature of folks who have been there, you know, five, six, seven years in governance. What a weird world. I'm curious to see what happens. This whole coronavirus has got the world upside down. Um, you referenced uh, the legislature suing the governor. Um, and we'll kind of get close to wrapping up here on one last note from this week is that on Wednesday, the a referee of the state Supreme Court heard oral arguments via the telephone in an, I guess it's technically a lawsuit, but a legal action that was filed last week by the League of Women Voters of Oklahoma and two individuals, a, a nurse practitioner and a, a woman living with cancer. And they had filed a, a writ of mandamus against the election board um, oh, it's against, but a writ of mandamus trying to compel the court or trying to get the court to compel the election board to make some changes to the instruction sheet that is included with absentee ballots that would effectively mean that voters could self-notarize absentee ballots rather than having to go and meet with a notary face-to-face -face somewhere, right? So as a, as a, you know, public health concern here. Uh, and so that was on Wednesday. We don't know how quickly the court will rule. Of course, that's up to them. They are still meeting, I think by telephone from what I've heard. And, and we do expect them to, to issue some kind of ruling relatively quickly because the deadline for printing ballots is fast approaching for the new, the June election. Uh, and I'm going to pause real quick to say my neighbor uses his leaf blower every single day. This is the third time today he's used his leaf blower. I don't know what he's doing. He he blows off the trampoline. He's blowing dirt off the patio. I don't think he owns a broom is the problem. But he's got a gas powered leaf blower. And I've been home now for since February 7th. And this dude uses leaf blower every day, multiple times. This is my karaoke neighbors, for those of you who follow me on Twitter. So at night, they sing karaoke very loudly, and during the day, it is it is leaf blowers all day long. That's I, so I, funny. I digress, but I'm gonna. this is what's going to make me crack in this quarantine. So if you, if you hear that noise in the background now, you know what's happening. I've been trying to mute <laughs> when you guys are talking to limit that, but he, he fired it up right when I was talking, and it got my goat. You all probably... Right, well, heard that from from my end too because they've been walking by my window with the leaf blowers as well golly amy Curran from generation citizen was tweeting about it too i had a call with her the other day um about CivicsCon, and she said she had three at the same time in her neighborhood going and she was just about to go insane so there is some science behind this leaf blowers the pitch at which particularly gas-powered leaf blowers operate like permeates walls um for a long distance and so they um, contribute like 
pretty overtly to noise pollution and at, at a level that's unhealthy. So I, I assume that my neighbors sing karaoke so loudly because he's deaf from his leaf blower usage. So <laughs> that's my assumption. Anyway, I digress. Well, and Andy, before we go, yeah, um, it's important to mention on the national level that there is a group organizing a boycott, some call it a strike, um, on behalf of workers at Walmart, Amazon, um, Whole Foods, uh, Instacart, um, and I think a couple of other uh, corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, during this time, some of these grocers have made a whole lot of money, and some are arguing that uh, they can do more for their workers. And so we'll see how that pans out, you know, over time. And, you know, if it sustains, if um, the workers are able to negotiate any demands. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, that's it. Is, I haven't seen any news about it today to see how widespread it is. But um, if they were able to get organized, a nationwide like labor walkout or strike would be an, another huge deal um, for our country that's going on right now. And very interesting to see how that impacts the overall environment. All right. Well, before we go, I do want to um, issue a reminder and make an announcement that um, today we officially launched the website and registration for CivicsCon, which is our virtual civics conference um, about civics, voting, elections, connecting with our neighbors and building a better democracy. You can go to civicscon.com and find it there. It's and if you follow Let's Fix This on social media, we've shared it. Or you follow me, I've shared it. Um, and it, it was on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash civicscon. It's civicscon and everything. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, we're super excited. So you can see on the website, there's a full list of all the speakers um, that are going to participate. Um, maybe not full. I've got a couple more that uh, have yet to be added. I'm waiting uh, on some information. And then also the agenda for the day, um, we're going to have sessions about gerrymandering and redistricting, about open primaries and um, ranked choice voting, about voter registration and vote by mail. Um, we're going to have one about running for office, about government transparency and you know doing advocacy in a virtual world. Uh, about how the next generation um, can save democracy, specifically Generation Z, which is the youngest among us. Um, and we've got, I think, a really cool model here that we're able to pair up, in many cases, national level people. So, you know, the CEO of vote.org, of um, the National Freedom of Information Association or Coalition, um, people from Common Cause, people from the National Vote at Home Institute, um, open primaries, you know, run for something. These big groups, we have partnered them with folks from here in Oklahoma that are like boots on the ground folks. So Nicole McAfee from ACLU of Oklahoma, uh, Lauren Zuniga. Um, I'm going to be in one of the, I'm going to kind of moderate some things. Um, uh, AC Fauci. Um, we've got a bunch of students from uh, Generation Citizen. They're going to participate. Amy Curran's going to be a part of it. Uh, it's going to be a day long live stream event on Facebook and YouTube but it'll be interactive. So it's not just, you can certainly set it up and watch while you're working from home, but you can also comment. You can have a dialogue and we will be able to see that and kind of bring your comments into the conversation as we go along. I am 
so jazz. I was up till about 2.30 last night finalizing things. I'm super excited. So that is May 29th. Hopefully all of our listeners have marked their calendars already. But go to civicscon.com and take a look. Uh, and big thanks to our co-hosts for this Generation Citizen and the Oklahoma Humanities. We are very excited. My hope is we do a really good job this year um, and we get some good support. Maybe folks could donate a few dollars to make this happen and we can put all that towards doing it in person next year, hopefully post-coronavirus, an actual like live in-person conference where we get to shake hands and hug and see each other. I think that's a, such a richer experience. I'm cool with technology in many ways, but I'm also growing weary of not being able to hang out with my friends and colleagues. So with that then brings us to the end of the show. Bailey, thank you for being here as always. Thank you, of course. Dr. Melson, thank you, sir. Hey man, I wouldn't miss it. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Let's Pod This on Apple Podcasts because that helps us um, reach a bigger audience, helps other folks discover us. Please share. My mother-in-law listened to us for the first time this week. Um, and said it was not terrible. So we now have four or five listeners. I've lost count. Congrats to each and every one of you. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Let's Fix This Okay. Scott is at SC Nelson. Bailey is at Bailey M. Perkins. And I am at Andy OKC. You can also make a donation on our website. Check out civicscon.com for information about that. And, um, our podcast is edited and produced by the three of us. Let's pod this as a member of the Mostly Harmless Media Network. Our theme music is called Rhino Funk by artist So Down. Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who strives to educate and equip all Oklahomans and people elsewhere to engage with their government. We encourage you to get involved in any way you can. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week. Right.